Are you ready to free the body and free the soul? Join Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, as he guides us on today's journey. Here's Dr. David. Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, and here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting edge work in the areas of healing or spirituality or social transformation. And I'm very excited about today's show. I haven't done a show in a while. I felt like I needed a little bit of a break after about 69 shows over a couple of years. And I'm getting more and more selective in who I choose as my guests. And so I'm particularly excited about today's show. My special guest is a physician, a board-certified neurologist who also is very knowledgeable about Ayurveda, which is one of my passions. And her name is Dr. Kulreet Chowdhury. I'll be calling her Dr. Chowdhury. And she is the author of the best-selling book, The Prime, which was published almost a couple of years ago, which I read and thought was brilliant. And uh, we waited a while, but here we are. And so we're going to be building in this interview on some foundational material that I will link to at the bottom of the show notes or the YouTube page. And uh, I think it'll be a more exciting interview for everybody, including Dr. Chowdhury. So Dr. Chowdhury, welcome to Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. Thank you so much, Dr. David. I'm so happy to be here. So we have about an hour today. Dr. Chowdhury has graced us with an hour. And so, as a clinician, someone who's been in practice for 30 years, one of the things I found particularly brilliant about your book was your sensitivity to not only what patients need, but what patients are willing and able to do. Because if you, you know, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you can't inspire someone to think, oh, that's worth doing, and I could do that, it doesn't do much good. And so one of the things that I thought was really great was, first of all, how you gradually ease people into things and how you gave people logical explanations for things that people have heard about, but it really wasn't real for them. And I, one of the things I want to go into in more detail, because I think it was so brilliant, want to make sure everybody really gets this is your I loved your explanation about the gut brain connection and how the toxins and the bad guys in the gut the story you tell about how that leads to uh, a funky brain that's something <laughs> I want to get into later but one of the things I thought was really powerful and elegant was how you were able to interact with a system of Ayurveda, which is based on individual differences and uniqueness, but you were able to introduce that later, that you were able to, even with your sensibilities of individuality and uniqueness, that you were able to come up with some basic things that people could start doing that everybody could do that was safe and it was easy. And in particular, I'm thinking about um, your use of trifola and the, the kind of mild curry powder recipe and of course the skin brushing. And, um, and then later on, the brain supports of the uh, Bacopa and the ashwagandha and then uh, later on the the use of Google to um, really do a deeper dive on the, the grimy gunk cleaner. And the fact that you were able to have everybody do that and not be concerned about uh, aggravating certain individual tendencies. Um, and then once people had the experience of the value they got and trusting your recommendations, then going into lifestyle changes, uniqueness, things like that. Then once you gain their trust about uh, encouraging people to maybe uh, take the next steps in an entire lifestyle makeover. But I was so impressed as a clinician 
about your sensitivity to not only what was needed, but also to uh, the psychology of behavioral change. Is that something you just sort of had a natural knowing about, or did you hit your head against the wall a lot first? <laughs> it was a little bit of both. Um, I really have to credit my mom to a certain extent with my approach because she's an unfathomably practical person. And I think she raised us just to be extremely practical, meaning you can have all of the great intentions in the world, but if you can't actually implement them, who's going to benefit from that? And so I think it's just something that I've been raised with being extremely, extremely, you know, practical in my approach to life in general. Um, so there's that aspect of it. But there was some, you know, hitting my head up against the wall because, um, you know, as I mentioned in the book, I was so excited to have all of this information. And I saw the impact that it made in my own life. And I just couldn't wait to share it. And so there was that initial trial and error of, you know, it's, this is obviously something that works. Why can't people do it? And then I switched roles less as a neurologist and more of a neuroscientist and just started to really study it. And, you know, it's just what you said. You can, you can have all of this wonderful information, but if you're not approaching people where they are, and in this in this case, it wasn't approaching them psychologically where they were, but really approaching them biochemically where they were. If you don't approach people where they are, you can't really help them. So, you know, I, as, as brilliant as it looks in hindsight, um, just like most things <laughs> as you're going through it, there's a tremendous amount of, of trial and error and just recognizing, oh, this doesn't work. I've got to try something else. Now, do you still take patients or have you closed your practice? So I, I actually had closed my practice um, for a few years. And I just recently started seeing patients again. Um, a couple days a week, I see patients at the Chopra Center. And mainly just because I love it. I just, I, you know, it, it's, it's hard to be good at something and not do it. Um, and I love that interaction. Uh, it's the connection with people that has fueled, you know, my reason for doing absolutely everything. And I think no matter what you do on like a community level, it's what you do on an individual level. It's the stories that run through your mind that really gives you like the courage, the strength and the energy to continue. So I found in my practice I've experimented with different mixes of patient visits and education and community stuff. And I find that I definitely need both to yeah. feel my best. What are you doing the rest of the time uh, of your professional time space when you're not doing one-on-one -on -one work with patients? Are you uh, doing any... Uh, group coaching? Are you doing any uh, empowering of other health professionals? What are you doing? Well, I'll try to keep this brief. Um, so what I was doing is I was actually launching a company a few months ago. And then I got, um, it was something we had been working on for quite a while. And it was um, a rather massive endeavor. It would have national implications. And then I got a little kind of nudge from my spiritual teacher to come to India. Um, that's why I no longer have any hair. She kind of, you know, just took all the hair off, all past identities. And I just stayed with her and meditated for three months. And she just said, you know, it's time now to drop all of that, um, which was not easy to do. Um, but I did. And at the end of that three months of meditation, she asked me to actually come to India to launch a Ayurvedic center um, where we will be bringing some of the most ancient texts of Ayurvedic medicine, actually known as Siddha medicine. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Most people have not heard of Siddha medicine. I've only um, heard of Siddha yoga. Yeah, it was <clears throat> the Siddha yogis that um, you know, first cognized Siddha medicine. Um, but these are, it, it's like, you know, the next step of Ayurvedic medicine. It's um, using modalities that were oftentimes kept 
very secretive, but it's even a more powerful version of Ayurvedic medicine, um, or I should say a more powerful element of Ayurvedic medicine. And she decided that it was time that the world was introduced to this. So she's now collecting all of the Siddha medicine texts, which are written on palm leaves in this ancient dialect that is no longer in existence. And they're being translated into English. So I'll be one of the first physicians, um, at least one of the first Western physicians who I think is ever being allowed to even see these texts. I think it's the first time that they've ever been translated um, into English like this so systematically. And so we will be offering some of these treatments at the center. So I'll be moving to India um, as of next year. And so we're kind of, uh, you know, neck deep in getting that project going, coordinating that between here and India. And I'm also working on my second book, which will actually look at how sound is used as medicine. Um, and this is one of the areas of discipline in Siddha medicine. They use um, different mantras and different sound healing as part of the process for reversing imbalance. And as I've started to incorporate this into my practice already, I'm, I'm kind of stunned at just how powerful of a modality it is. So that's what I do during the rest of my time, kind of reorganized my entire existence, my entire life, and learning to reduce everything I own down to a couple suitcases so that we can move and slowly growing out my hair. <laughs> so are you going to move your whole family? Yes. Oh my Our goodness. whole family is, is moving. <clears throat> I still don't quite know if it's a completely permanent move or if this is something that we will replicate already, the project has a lot of international ties and it has already quite an international um, presence. The clientele will be very international. And so I don't know yet whether this is the beginning of, you know, centers that will be replicated around the world and whether we'll be traveling all over the place um, but I'm really at a place where I, I, don't, I don't care what it is. I, it's just, it feels so right. It feels um, just like an entire new chapter of my life that I don't even know if I was supposed to have this chapter in my life, but it feels just like this amazing, amazing, um, you know, adventure. So we're just starting with the first and then see what happens, you know, from there. But yes, yeah, so our, our, the whole family's moving. Now, is your spiritual teacher in India? Yes, she's and, in India. And is um, she the same person who is revealing these texts? Or should she guide you to that person? No, it's the same person, which is um, wow. it's very hard to explain the magic of that when it's your spiritual teacher who also becomes now your like career advisor and the information when it comes from that level um it comes in ways that just you can't even comprehend right, because right. it's no longer you know this black and white type of teaching that there may be something that she wants you to know and you'll just be walking and you'll witness like something happening in nature. You'll witness like the trees in a certain way or the birds in a certain way or the insects in a certain way. And that knowledge just comes to you. And that's how it's already started to happen. It's been a very meditative experience, not just when I'm in meditation, but even out of meditation of starting to understand, I would say kind of like the finer laws of nature, the subtleties of life. And it's just been the most profound education of my entire life. I just, I would have never missed this rocket for the world. So I'm pretty excited. And it hasn't even sort of officially started. So I'm pretty excited. Well, I really admire you. Uh, this is the second time in terms of what I know about you. This is the second time that you really had, you know, from the, from the point of view of society, you had a very exalted position that you put at risk, you know, first as a board certified <laughs> neurologist and then going outside the box and then, and then having all this national exposure and all the opportunities that opened up and then walking away from that. And I, I really admire you for putting first things first. And, you know, there's an old Taoist saying that 
talks about how easy it is to get sucked in. It, it goes, nothing fails quite like success. Yes, it's so and, true. And uh, <laughs> so I admire you for your commitment to truth and to honoring your dharma. So it's very inspiring. Um, Thank you very much. You know, I have to comment on that. Though. What I found is it's in your ability to walk away from something where your dharma becomes bigger. And, you know, there is this beautiful talk that my teacher just gave about the difference between happiness and peace. Yes. And, you know, just how happiness is this constantly changing state that the closer and closer you get to the object of your happiness, the more sorrowful you become. Whereas in the state of peace, you're just constantly happy. And that has been one of the big transitions you know, through this whole process is really, really learning to be peaceful no matter what changes are occurring around you. And it really, I'm seeing the truth of that, that it, my state of happiness, not that it's permanently etched, but it's becoming more and more permanent. It has absolutely nothing to do with what's happening around me. And in that state of fluidity, I can be or do anything that I need to do at the time. And there's not so much of the, um, the attachment. And so I, I think the hardest thing for me was cutting my hair <laughs> and the rest kind of fell into place. I've had, you know, long hair my entire life and had hair down to my waist when it was all cut off. So once that happened, I was like, all right, just let everything else fall away. <laughs> I'm sure your teacher got a real kick out of that assignment. <laughs> I think she did. She had a huge smile on her face. <laughs> well, I get a strong feeling that you guys are so deeply uh, unified, so yoked at mm. this point that I'm sure the transmission is occurring 24-7. You know, it's really true. It's funny that you say that, Dr. David, because very few people understand even what that relationship can mean. And I think especially from the Western perspective, there's Absolutely. almost this... You know, it's, it seems like such a horrific relationship that you could have, you know, where somebody could just strip you away of, of everything. It's the most liberating relationship you could be. And it is starting to feel like that more and more and more. And in that, there is just such a level of freedom and such a feeling that everything is going to be taken care of. And it's just, it's been a lot easier to live with, you know, our, we all have different personalities, but it's a lot easier to live in your personality when you're not hung up on the details of your life. Well, you know, I, I love Jesus's comment uh, where he talks, he, where his, his counsel to people, especially to his disciples, was to uh, be in the world, but not of it. Absolutely. Same idea. So uh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Um, yeah, the the, uh, the 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 subtle balance of a true guru chela relationship is something that is hard for the Western mind to grasp because the Western mind is so geared to avoiding domination. Which is funny because in the avoidance, you're dominated essentially by your own tendencies. Right. You know, you're dominated by your own ego, your own biases that I am this, I am that, and that becomes its own cage. And Absolutely. again, people have a hard time understanding that the whole relationship of, you know, the spiritual teacher, or the guru, is that they pull the ego off of you. You know, they, they actually pull the dominance off. And what you're left with is such a state of equanimity. And there's this assumption that that state of equanimity must come because you've learned how to suffer. And it's the exact opposite. It's such a joyful place to be. But, you know, and it's in a sense, it's not that I'm any less Western in terms of my ability to get things done. I mean, I'm having to, you know, help to coordinate the putting together this massive um, clinic. And that's just the first step. Like, I mean, it's just growing, growing, growing exponentially. Yeah. No, I mean, you still have your act together, but everything has a different sense of proportion. Exactly. Right. And I, I, I have a fear that we might be losing some viewers here. We might be <laughs> waxing a little, uh, a little out there. So I want to pull us back. No and, problem. Uh, one thing, I didn't get from your book is uh, when you decided that you wanted to shift 
back to practicing from a more Ayurvedic standpoint. You talked a little bit about being persistent, about making sure that you got into a program where you could study this, but you didn't go into detail about who you studied with or where you studied. Are you willing to talk about that? Yes, absolutely. Where did you go back to school and who are your teachers? So I had kind of a formal and informal education. Um, And the formal part of it was a group that had um, worked with um, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi to bring back Ayurveda. And this was a group that had originally trained Deepak Chopra and many other of the initial physicians that, um, you know, embraced Ayurvedic medicine. And so I had first contacted them and said, look, I need to learn this like a physician would learn this. And so that's really how I first began. And they hadn't taught physicians, I think, at that time for 15 years. And so kind of pulled some of the teachers um, forcefully out of retirement. And it was so nice because then we approached the, you know, subject matter from just a disease-based model, which is very similar to Western medicine. But simultaneously, I was getting this other training. We had a group of very, very experienced Ayurvedic physicians who used to come from India to the U.S. and they would do these tours. And when they would come, I would take my patients with me on the weekends and we would meet with them. And I don't know which form of education was more important. I think it was the combination of the formal and the informal that ultimately led to this very intimate relationship with Ayurveda. But in those, on those weekends, we would just sit and I would feel the pulse and they would feel the pulse and they would just say, what do you, you know, what do you feel? And when I was first asked that question, without really having much formal training, I thought, you know, what do you mean? What do I feel like? I haven't studied this. And when I let go of that, when I let go of that need to organize and that need to structure and just allowed the knowledge to come, it was pretty profound, the information that would come out. I mean, it was actually in a way more profound than when you learn it in such a structured way. So I had both kind of lanes interweaving together of the formal way of approaching, you know, pulse diagnosis, the Ayurvedic evaluation, and then the highly, highly, I don't want to call it intuitive because I do think it's just a different level of knowledge that many people just don't develop. And intuition somehow seems to imply that it's not a within the normal sphere of human knowledge, and it very much is. But it was the less structured approach where you were really just connecting and right. getting kind of information directly from the person on an experiential level. And so that was really my, my training over the course of um, several years. And it was, um, you know, it was just a blast. It was really like, um, you know, kind of just like if, if I had designed the ultimate educational experience for me, this is exactly what it would have been. Great. So let's get into some things here. So I, I tell people half seriously, half joking, that if I was stuck on a desert island, and I could only take one remedy with me that I would take trifola. Yeah, I totally. The and, second one would be turmeric. I mean, they're like neck and neck, but so, trifola, absolutely. So let's, for, for people that aren't familiar with trifola, can you do like a five minute wonderful sales job for sure. trifola? <laughs> So I almost hesitate in a way to even call trifla an herb or a supplement because it's really three berries. And as I mentioned in the book, one of the berries, the amla berry, it was a berry that we used to eat regularly, like as a pickle. And even in India, when you look at the older generations, they don't even consider trifla as an herb. It was kind of just like this tonic for staying youthful and staying healthy. And the beauty of trifla, you know, when you talk about what does trifla do, it's easier to almost say, what does it not do? Right. It's balancing to the entire body. It falls into a category of herbs that we call resinas. And resinas are herbs that actually promote health. So when we tend to think about medications or disease, we tend to think about how to, you know, treat a particular condition, but there are actually herbs in Ayurvedic medicine that promote health. And trifla is one of those herbs that both promotes health and treats disease. And it's just this absolute foundational herb because it helps to remove 
the toxins in the body, normalize digestion, clear out any of the undigested junk in the GI tract, heals the mucous membrane, and helps to promote a healthy gut flora or microbiome. And what we're finding, you know, both in Western science, which is, of course, the basis of Ayurveda, is without a healthy microbiome, you have nothing. You can't build anything. And Trifla, from my perspective, is one of the easiest, but most, you know, and it's inexpensive, but most, you know, kind of cost-effective in terms of it does so much for doing so little. Like all you do is have to take a tablet, and it does so much that it's kind of the no-brainer. And there's even a Sanskrit saying that one of the ingredients in Trifla that you know, even if you don't have your mother, if you have you know Trifla you're still going to be taken care of. So it's just a, my, my go-to. As soon as somebody walks in the door, everybody can benefit from Trifla. It's safe for all types. Yes, it's tri-doshic, meaning yes. that it treats all the different body types. Let's talk about your wonderful curry recipe, which is not too overly spicy. And... Uh, Let's talk about, you know, you, you mentioned in the book the ingredients and the proportions, but let's talk about why that is so important. Why is that curry powder so important for people to get in the habit of sprinkling that on a lot of their stuff a lot of the time? So first of all, curry is not supposed to be spicy. Most people think of curry and the red chilies associated with it, but the actual base curry powder is not spicy at all because when you add the red chilies, that's not necessarily balancing to everyone. So basic curry recipes are meant to be balancing once again to all different body types. But you know, when you think even historically of how everybody was looking for the spice trail to India. You know, why is that? Why are spices so magical? You know, why did it capture the attention of even the royal families? And it goes way beyond just the fact that it makes your food taste delicious, but it actually helps to ignite digestion. And this goes back again to this whole concept that without proper digestion, you cannot maintain health. So each one of the ingredients in that particular curry recipe, but really in the majority of curry recipes, minus the chilies, which is really something that's added for taste. But each one of the ingredients works synergistically to help ignite digestion. And that means a lot of things. It doesn't just mean that, you know, again, the food is more flavorful, so it's sending signals as soon as it hits your tongue to the brain to release the digestive enzymes. But it also means that as you are moving that food down, it's releasing chemicals all throughout to make sure that you're actually able to break it down. And, you know, things like turmeric, which is a part of pretty much every curry recipe, we're starting to realize the anti-inflammatory characteristics of turmeric, not just for digestive healing, but for a myriad of different conditions. So in one single step, one little, you know, dash of curry powder, you have accomplished something that an entire medicine cabinet of pills would not be able to do. And you're taking it in with food. And when you take something in with food, when you take spices in with food, it enlivens more of the natural intelligence of the body, which is not what happens when you're taking pills. So it's kind of just, you know, along with Trifla, these are just some of the easiest, easiest things you can do to begin to reverse disease. Let's talk about your prime tea and let's go into a little bit of detail about the three ingredients and what makes, unless you, unless it's pretty much the same answer you had to the curry, <laughs> what makes the prime tea so gentle yet powerful? Well, the ingredients are similar to even in the curry powder. We have the cumin, the coriander, and the fennel. But there is something about boiling the seeds where you are pulling out in slightly more concentrated amounts the essence of those seeds that helps to make it even a little bit more powerful. And there's a few things about the tea. So first of all, 
just drinking hot water in and of itself is of benefits. And I always remind people that, you know, when you stick your hand in cold water, it turns white. Why? Because you vasodilated all of the blood vessels and you've reduced blood flow. And so constricted. I'm sorry. I said, I meant to say vasoconstricted. You're absolutely right. Vasoconstricted. And what I meant to say is that, so just having um, a body part or drinking hot water vasodilates those blood vessels. So opens up those blood vessels and increases blood flow. And blood flow is necessary for normal digestion. It's necessary for detoxification. So just the fact that you're drinking something hot is of benefit. But now what you're drinking has these three ingredients and these three ingredients even individually benefit the entire body help to again ignite that digestive fire but when you put them together they become exponentially more powerful and each one again has its own unique property like fennel for example is really really good at moving out excess lymphatic um, waste in the body what i call fake fat and so when you combine that with the other seeds, you have this powerful step, but it's still very, very gentle that starts to move out and flesh out all of the toxins while very gently enlivening your digestion in your gut. And, you know, I just, I've never seen anything in the form of a pill or a medication that can do what these natural products are able to do. And even to this day, I still drink, you know, the prime tree regularly, even to this day, when I do a detox and I'm starting to notice like, oh my gosh, I'm starting to get a little headachy. I'm starting to feel it. All I have to do is double up on my prime tea for the day and it just flushes everything out. It's absolutely amazing. It's beautiful. Um, and that's also tridoshic. Yes, also yeah. tridoshic. So I want to get into something deeper, but before that, I think this is the perfect time to uh, grace our listeners and viewers with your story that will help them to connect uh, imbalanced gut, imbalanced brain. So if you could tell the Cliff Notes version of that story, <laughs> that will segue us into some deeper areas. Sure. So I had been introduced to Ayurvedic medicine, you know, growing up, and part of it was just the way that we live. Being of Indian uh, heritage, you know, some of these things were just a part of like how we cooked and, you know, the way that we, we ate and lived. But when I got into medical school and then further in my neurology training, I dropped a lot of that because the training was just inconsistent <laughs> essentially with a balanced life. And so when I became a neurologist within the first um, few months of becoming a neurologist, I developed migraine headaches. And my immediate thought was, you know, no big deal. I'll just start the medications that I'm prescribing for my patients that I just, you know, spent the last decades essentially learning about. And when I started the medications, um, the side effects were so horrific that it was a real tug of war to decide whether to have the migraines or the side effects from the medications. And so unable to treat my own migraine headaches, I basically once again turned to my mom who reintroduced me to some of the Ayurvedic physicians that um, she used to take us to growing up. And so when I first met the Ayurvedic physician and you know, he did the evaluation, the first thing he said is this is a gut issue. And my immediate response to that was this guy has absolutely no clue what he's talking about. You know, I, here I was, a formally trained neurologist, went to some of the best schools in the U.S., and we never once talked about gut health with migraine headaches or any neurological disease. And so my immediate response was one of total cynicism. But when you can't do anything for yourself, you're willing to give anything a try. And so I implemented his recommendations. And I mean, sure enough, within three months, my headaches were gone. Um, within six months, I mean, I just wasn't even living in the same body. I, had, I didn't even notice that I had gained some excess weight, and that came off immediately. And it really forced me to relook at what the connection was between the gut and the brain. And so when I started to implement this type of approach to other neurological conditions, I saw the same thing. There was a complete reversal of the conditions or a slowing down. And these were conditions that, as part of my training, they were untreatable. So that's how I started this entire, you know, kind of 
journey into what is the connection between the gut and the brain. And, and can you talk about it? What is the connection? Because I think for people to understand the whole relationship between toxicity, bacteria, and other microorganisms that are designed to basically recycle garbage right. and the impact that that has on gut integrity, the impact that has on um, triggering autoimmune and then the connection with the brain. If you can do a quick thing on that, I think when that gets real to people, they like get motivated. And so I think that would be very useful. So I go into kind of very, very deep detail in, in the book because it's hard to summarize all of, of that um, succinctly in just a few yeah. moments. But, you know, first of all, these aren't really two separate systems and Ayurvedic medicine acknowledges that, that gut health and brain health are actually extensions of each other, which again was, it kind of rocked my world as a neurologist. I mean, this was completely different from what I had been trained in. And so the question becomes, and how are they linked? I mean, how are they biochemically linked? And the most obvious connection is just looking at the relationship of the microbiome or the microorganisms that live in the gut and how they affect the brain. Even I was not trained, and it was only once I started doing my research when I started practicing Ayurveda, that the majority of you know, many of your neurotransmitters actually come from your gut bacteria. So they produce the majority of um, neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine. That right there was shocking. And so when you have people who are going on antidepressants where they're trying to boost their serotonin levels, instead of putting them on a medication, you've got to look at why did your serotonin levels from your gut begin to decrease? So just looking at the fact that the gut can communicate with the brain. And when we look at the relay of information, the majority of information is actually coming from the gut and going to the brain. So not only do they communicate, but your gut is doing most of the talking and your brain is actually doing most of the listening. So there's that aspect of it. The other aspect is, you know, and I go into more detail in, in the book, but is this whole process of neuroadaptation to food. And this is what we would, you know, call food addictions, but that food can be addictive and it's addictive on two levels. It's addictive in that it forces the release of the pleasure neurotransmitters like dopamine in the brain, but it's also addictive in that it changes your gut flora. And so the bacteria that survive off of junk food are now rewarding your brain for eating the wrong foods. And so most people don't even look at, you know, food addictions as something that's being dictated by the gut and not necessarily by the brain. And that's why if you start to implement things like the trifla, the prime tea, and all of the things that we talk about in the book, when you start to implement that, what it does is it starts to change the gut flora and automatically then your choices for foods begin to change, which is why we call it, you know, spontaneous weight loss. But there's a third aspect of this, and, you know, you touched upon this, and that's what happens when the toxicity in the gut gets to a point where you start to have gut permeability, and you now have things flowing into the bloodstream from the gut that should have never been in the bloodstream. And what happens when that triggers then an autoimmune response, but more specifically in the brain, many of the things that are toxic to the enteric nervous system or the part of the nervous system that lives in the gut, the brain and the gut are also toxic to the neurons in the brain because they have a similar origin. And so it's extremely important to understand what would kill neurons in the gut because the same things will harm neurons in the brain. So those are kind of just like three little highlights, but I mean, I could just kind of keep going on and on and it's That's becoming great. the subject of a tremendous amount of investigation now. And are, does it turn out that a lot of the partially digested foods and toxins that do get into the bloodstream when there's gut permeability compromise, does a lot of that cross the blood-brain barrier? 
Well, we don't know how much of it crosses the blood-brain barrier, but what it does is it triggers an inflammatory response that also then can send signals to create the same type of inflammation in the brain. So it doesn't always necessarily have to cross, but what we're finding is that many of these things can damage the blood-brain barrier. So now you no longer have an intact blood-brain barrier, which is critical for brain health. And some of the endotoxins, so these are toxins that are in the bacterial cell wall um, of the pathogenic bacteria that overpopulate when you're eating the wrong food, they're directly neurotoxic to the brain. So there's a lot going on in terms of, you know, the release of toxins or the permeability of the gut and what that leads to in the brain. And it's not necessarily as as, as simple as just crossing over, but all of the different things that happen that ultimately lead to inflammation in the brain. I understand. Uh, does that explain why, I don't do this with my patients because I don't think it works, but does that explain why when people on their own before they've detoxed, when they start taking prebiotics, they feel worse? Because it's, it's actually feeding the bad guys that's, that's amplifying this cascade. Well, it depends. So there's a lot of different things that you need to do before you do a detox. And people will oftentimes go to, you know, like just doing the prebiotics, but they don't realize that you actually have to nourish the body before you can do anything in terms of detoxification. Absolutely. So it depends a little bit. It's usually coming from a place of, you know, they're releasing toxins but they have done absolutely nothing to first open the subtler channels, which is all that we do in phase one of the prime is we're basically just opening the channels so that once those toxins are flowing, the surface channels, once those toxins are flowing, you have a way of getting rid of them. But then they also don't nourish themselves enough because detoxification and removing toxins from your body is an energy dependent event. And so most people who are in a toxic state are also malnourished. So there's a logic behind it. And that's why I you know, created the program the way it is, is to logically open up the body and prepare itself for detoxification. So right. that you have as, you'll, you'll still have some, but you don't have as much of the side effects. Okay. So moving on, uh, the next step in your program is a lot of balancing the brain, and uh, you talk about some wonderful things to support that. And then the next step is a deeper dive into uh, really doing a deeper level of clearing of all sorts of levels of toxins. And you introduce the Ayurvedic concept of ama. And then you introduce this herb that you're in love with called Google. <laughs> and um, I wanted to give our listeners and viewers a chance for you to talk briefly about AMA and the blessing of Google. Sure. So AMA really just means something that is undigested. And so when we talk about AMA, it's not just the physical compounds that remain undigested in your body as unprocessed um, toxins, but also undigested emotions, undigested thoughts. In Ayurvedic medicine, these are not separated as, you know, separate levels of the body. They're integrated together. In other words, undigested emotions can lead to physical ama or physical toxins. And so the basis for disease is really the presence of this ama in the body that clogs the channels and allows for disease to erupt. Up until then, you can have an imbalance of the three doshas, but you may have some symptoms, but it won't necessarily turn into disease. It's once the ama accumulates that you have now a stable pathological process. And so one of the most important things in Ayurvedic medicine is removing ama. Now, we're seeing ama in um, modern society at a rate that we never even saw before. It's exponential, and it's due to you know, many different things. And this is why before I balance the doshas, I just focus on removing the toxic load. And so in the first few stages, we're just getting the body ready to do that. Uh, Google is a big gun and you don't just start it. I've had patients, you know, who 
doing this on their own before, you know, reading the book were like, oh yeah, I started myself on that and I felt awful. And I was like, well, you never just start yourself on Google. It's a very, very strong herb and it starts to remove everything that has accumulated in your body for, you know, decades and decades. So we first prep the body to receive the Google. And then once you start the Google, the way that it is described in the Sanskrit text mm -hmm. is that Google goes in and literally scrapes the ama out from the organ. So you can see why the body would need to be open and nourished before you can do this. But I've just, I've never really seen anything quite like um, Google. It's just, it's extremely powerful. It turns on all of the different agnis in the body. That's all of the different digestive fires. There's cellular digestifier that allows for transformation of ama and it just it's not specific just to physical ama it pulls up the emotional and mental ama as well which i think is just fantastic can any dosha type benefit from google safely if they're ready absolutely and that's a key part though is if they're ready any dosha that has been properly prepared can take google now, of all the doshas, pitta can sometimes get a little bit overheated because it's naturally hot and Google is a heating herb. Anything that removes toxins is oftentimes heating because it's melting the ama out of the cells. And so for pitta patients, I'll usually do a slightly lower dose. Kapha patients who tend to be heavier usually tolerate Google the most and so for most kapha patients, I have to do higher doses or we'll do it a little bit longer. But it is one of the herbs that when you are prepped for it, almost anyone's able to do it. It's the, the big mistake people make is that they're not properly prepped for it. Now, what about people who have a lot of vata when they're properly prepared? Will you tweak it a little bit or just give them the Google? Vata people usually just don't need as much. And so if they're properly prepped, because vata changes so quickly, they usually just need like the lower doses and we don't typically keep them on for quite as long. Okay. So if a patient has a lot of vata constitutionally, mm -hmm. but because of an accumulation of toxins and lifestyle, they've developed a significant amount of ama, mm -hmm. how will you just... You just have to be pretty ginger, kind of very careful in how you address that because you don't want to aggravate the vata? It's a very good question. And this happens with most vata patients as they get older because as the vata gets more aggravated, their digestion gets worse and worse and worse. But the beauty of vata is it changes pretty quickly. So if they start on the first two phases, they're usually okay to start the Google. The big issue for vata is it tends to get depleted. And for women, especially when they're in the perimenopausal or menopausal stage, um, they're oftentimes already in a depleted state. And so I will just usually like double up on the bone broth beforehand, you know, really make sure that they're well nourished. And occasionally, again, for, uh, especially for women who are in the perimenopausal or menopausal stage, I may do some extra things to support adrenal function before we go into Google. For Vata, you just have to make sure that their adrenals are not totally zapped, you know, before they go into Google. And if that's the case, just the first time they do the prime, just have them, you know, skip that step altogether, do everything else, let their body heal. And then, you know, the next year when it's time, they can do it then. But for Vata, it's mainly just making sure that they're not depleted, meaning that their energy stores are higher and their nutritional stores are high enough to do it. Do you have a favorite... Uh, adrenal tonic for people who have a lot of vata? I mean, ashwagandha, which is part of the program, is absolutely wonderful. Um, licorice is probably second on my list, you know, um, but for people who have really severe adrenal fatigue, I just remind them that in that state, they lose nutrients. The uh, adrenals, you know, actually cause the body to lose certain key nutrients. So I will oftentimes add things like um, B vitamins and uh, trace minerals and vitamin C just to make sure that you have everything you need for the adrenals to make the hormones that it needs. So from an Ayurvedic standpoint, you know, it's adding um, some of the tonifying herbs like ashwagandha and licorice. Um, but from a nutritional standpoint, because unfortunately now our foods are also so depleted of these nutrients that 
we oftentimes have to supplement before even allowing a Vata person to do a strong detox. Then I'll add some of the adrenal supplementation until I can get them to a place where then we can go ahead. And then you just, you know, Vata people don't need large amounts of Google. Right. Um, one of the things I noticed in the book, and I didn't know if this was uh, that you didn't think about it or if it was a political move or a strategic move, was you didn't really talk a lot about genetically modified food in the book and about, you didn't call it out. And uh, I fa I'm finding in private practice as, as it's becoming more ubiquitous that I cannot produce the results I want with my patients until I educate them about the connection between genetically modified foods, the microbiome and chronic inflammation can you give me the backstory on your decision there to not talk directly very much in the book about Absolutely. GMOs? So it was definitely not anything that was politically motivated. I actually talk about it quite a bit with my patients, but there are a thousand things that we could not cover in the book. And from an Ayurvedic perspective, it goes way beyond, you know, avoiding just genetically modified foods. In Ayurvedic medicine, we actually look at even what is happening when the seed is being planted into the ground and the intention of the purpose, sure. uh, or the intention of the person who's planting the seed. And there's even specific sounds that the seeds are exposed to. And so it's not so much by omission. One of the things I do mention in the book is the importance of, of, of choosing um, organic foods. It's yes. just what I have found is it goes back to, again, meeting people where they are. When somebody thinks that ketchup is a vegetable, and <laughs> potato chips is a breakfast, talking about genetically modified foods, they're not even ready for that. They don't even have a relationship yet with food. And so my first goal with people is mainly just to shift the microbiome. And then what starts to happen is as you do that, they naturally start to notice that, you know, it's strange because now I'm starting to notice that, you know, when I'm eating genetically modified foods versus organic foods, it actually feels different. And I feel that the power really comes when somebody has the experience. And so my first goal with this book is, you know, how do you create an experiential level with food in the body so that people begin to make these connections? And, you know, and I'm not joking, like many of the patients that I'll first start with, um, they begin their day with a donut. And so when we go to talking about even the way that foods are grown, that's, it's just too big of a step. Yeah. But I totally agree with you. It's part of my kind of patient education, the second part. I see. But when I bring it into the first part, you know, so many of these people, they don't cook their own foods. They don't have a relationship with food. So it's I didn't realize I didn't realize that your patient base was at that level of consciousness. I I, I have every type of patient. I have always and I actually pride myself on that. I have always attracted every type of patient. And I think that's a reflection of how inclusive and non-judgmental my practice has always been, that I am never critical of people when they come in, that I'm very, very firm about where we need to go. But um, I've always been surprised. You know, I have people who come from all over the U.S. I have people who come from the Midwest. And I'm always like, how do you, even, you know, how did you even hear about Ayurvedic medicine? <laughs> And I think much of it just comes from word of mouth of, hey, you know, she's really helpful. She's really open. And so I have people who, you know, are probably at the top one percentile in terms of how well they take care of themselves and they just want to go further. And I have people who are just absolutely desperate, come in on 20 different medications. And I look at both people exactly the same, you know, in just a state of love and non-judgment and how can I um, for people, you know, obviously your practice time is limited for people who incorporate your recommended changes and like they, they get like 80% better, but they hit a plateau and they want to work with an Ayurvedic doctor. Do you have a way to vet the doctors and make some recommendations for people or what Absolutely. would be your, what would be your suggestion for someone looking to find 
an Ayurvedic physician that you would feel comfortable recommending? So first of all, the book was never meant to be in place of an Ayurvedic practitioner. I think the relationship that people have with an Ayurvedic practitioner is gold. Um, this is a way of introducing it and really kind of even prepping you for a relationship. Right. There's an organization called the National Ayurvedic Medical Association, and um, they are selective of the people that they refer. They have to go through a certain amount of uh, training. And so that's typically the place that I refer people to. Now, it's hard to find people who are MDs and Ayurvedic practitioners. And I tell people, you know, don't worry about it. You know, having one good Ayurvedic practitioner is the equivalent of having like 100 MDs. That, um, but what about, the, what, about, what about managing the, the Ayurvedic drug interactions? So many of the current Ayurvedic practitioners have a sense of that because there's been quite a bit written now of how the Ayurvedic herbs influence different medications. So somebody who's pretty on top of their game should be able to look at a list and say, okay, you know, when we get to this point, we may have to make these adjustments. Now the Ayurvedic practitioner, if they don't have an MD, won't adjust the medications, but what they can do is create a conversation with the physician to let them know this medication improves thyroid function in about two months, we would expect that they need to reduce their thyroid medications. And those types of relationships, you know, exist very commonly and are becoming more and more common. And that happens a lot with acupuncturists as well. They'll communicate with the physician and say, you know, by this point, we should notice that they can come down on their blood pressure medication and so forth. So it's really just bringing everybody into a common conversation. Can you tell us about your upcoming book or is that hush? <laughs> No, we're, we're just sitting at the proposal right now. The publisher is actually just reviewing it. But it's essentially looking at the tradition of sound medicine, um, not just from an Ayurvedic perspective, but looking at how that has been present in almost every single healing tradition globally. And so we'll first look at, you know, the ancient traditions around the world and then showing how it's already being incorporated in um, modern science also globally and people will be surprised that we're actually using it already and then it's prescriptive the second part of the book is prescriptive on how to use specific sounds to treat specific conditions i'm really excited because it's going deeper into the science of ayurveda part of the hidden aspect of ayurveda and it's one of these things that has zero side effects and is you know basically free <laughs> Well, I'm mindful of your time, Dr. Chowdhury. We're getting to the top of the hour. I'd like to leave the last word with you to say anything you'd like to say in closing and to give any contact information if people want to know more about you, your work, your book, stay in touch with you, please. Thank you. Um, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. And thank you for your thoughtful questions. I really appreciated them. The main thing I want to let people know is there's, a lot of assumptions that we make about who we are that are gut related and that there's aspects of the mind and there's aspects of the psychology of the mind that are completely gut driven. So before you judge yourself for being a certain way, I would just consider you know, doing the program in the prime and you might just be surprised at who is actually underneath that unhealthy microbiome. And for anybody who wants to learn more, you can go to my website. It's just drkulreetchaudhary.com. And the book is widely available um, you know, on Amazon. And I'm also, it has all of my information on the website. If you want to follow us on um, Twitter and Facebook, and I'm always leaving updates in terms of what we're going to do in India and the next book on social media. So I look forward to hearing from you. Could you spell Kulreet Chowdhury? <laughs> It doesn't just roll off the tongue. <laughs> so it's doctor and then K-U-L-R-E-E-T. And the last name is C-H-A-U-D-H-A-R-Y. But if you try to even spell anything close to that, I'm usually the first person that pops up on the internet. <laughs> now, is that doctor spelled out or is that D-R? You know what? That's a good question. I believe it's D-R, but okay. my website automatically comes up. I believe it's D-R. Um, okay. Thank you for pointing that out.
Well, it's really been a joy and a privilege to spend this hour with you. I, uh, your, your book had an impact on me personally and professionally. It gave me a, uh, it gave me the idea and the confidence that I could start to integrate Ayurveda into my private practice without, uh, without burning bridges. And that, um, that means a lot to me. So I want to personally thank you for that. And I'm glad I had the opportunity to, uh, build on the interviews that have been done in the past and uh, take it a little bit further. So thank you so much. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc, and here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in-depth interviews with individuals doing cutting edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. Our special guest today has been Dr. Kulreet Chowdhury with less hair, but even more love. (laughs) And with that, we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. To access all episodes, including show notes, go to CuttingEdgeDoc.com. That's CuttingEdgeDoc.com. Lastly, if you love today's show, you can support Dr. David, his work, and the show by going over to iTunes and giving a five-star rating and a heartfelt comment. Thank you again for joining us today and for your commitment to freeing the body, freeing the soul.